0: So for something a little bit different than we've been sort of the the track we've been taking so far I think um, has been a bit more I suppose rational I guess might be a, a good word for it but there's something to be said, especially in the apologetic vein, for something that hits a little bit more subjectively, I suppose, or I don't know I guess you can phenomenologically you know put it put it any way that you want um One thing that you will see there are, there there's books and things like that on what people have called imaginative apologetics, whether or not you think it's a good way of putting the topic, I suppose could be a discussion for a different day. But nevertheless, I think it does hit on something true in the sense that if an apologetic simply appeals to right reason, you're simply not going to catch everyone in the sense that it doesn't appeal to everyone in the same way. There's a sense in which I think from an academic perspective, there is sometimes a bit too much emphasis on a kind of purely logical or rational chain Uh, We think, well, you should be able to prove all of these things and see how it concludes here, right? That's not how a lot of us just live our daily lives, and it's certainly not how a lot of us, a lot of people approach matters of the faith. So there is something to be said about appealing to the imagination, appealing to the heart, um, appealing maybe to a kind of human intuition, as it were. And so a couple of things that I want to look at are some thinkers and writers that have done this or thought about this. So if we look at a little bit of Lewis, go over um, what Tolkien has to say on in the relatively famous essay that might not seem at first to be relevant, but I think that it is if you'll stay with me and trust me for a few minutes. Um, but so we'll start here, right? And this is a relatively famous passage. If no, if if you haven't actually read it yourself, I'm sure that you've heard it mentioned, right? Creatures are not born with desire. This is from Lewis's *Mere Christianity*. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, men feel sexual desire, etc. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So in, in a word, he, I think Lewis is expressing something that um, would get us too far afield. But when, when St. Thomas, for instance, talks about the natural desire for God, right, he talks about the fact that in nature right, we have desires and that there is no natural desire that is frustrated. Right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be within our nature. Right? You can't have our desire for right, our thirst, Right? We may not be able to find water, right? but it doesn't. But the fact that we thirst means that there is something capable of slaking that thirst, even if we can't actually find it and we die in the desert without reaching it. right? It's within us. So when he looks at this desire for that desires that nothing on earth can fulfill, right? what he's getting at is that innate sense of the human orientation towards something transcendent that transcends what we can find and what can appeal to us at a purely natural level. So I think that that, I think that that makes sense. Um, in, uh, what's, what is it in Chesterton's? It's not orthodoxy. It's the, um, the everlasting man, I think, is where Chesterton says that art is the signature of man. So he talks about it as an apologetic for the faith. And one of the thing, one of his major points of reference is the fact that human beings are the only ones that create art. Right? And there's a reason for that, right? That's, the lower beasts, right, don't feel a need to express themselves in a particular way. And so when he looks at art, he said, "Well, look at the cave paintings, right? From very beginning of history, we've seen that there's been this sort of upward thrust of the human spirit to creation. Why would that be? Right. So for Chesterton, it's well, it's art itself, right? The fact that we just make anything, really, and then especially." Um, what we might you know, what we sort of commonly call artisan artwork in Tolkien's essay on fairy stories he addresses largely the same thing just through his own lens of writing um, writing fiction writing writing fairy stories as he calls it so when Tolkien asks the question, right, "Well, what is a fairy story, it's kind of apologetic for the art form at first. And then it moves to something that I think is a little bit more profound, maybe, maybe exponentially more, more profound. Depends on how it strikes you, I think. So when Tolkien begins to talk about this, has, has anyone read this essay before? Okay, it's, yeah, it's relatively short. It might take, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes, something like that. It's it's pretty short, so you could sit down and read it in the span of half an hour probably at the most. Um, so he talks about this word fairy, and he talks about how, he says, well, it's, you know, it's more akin to the way that we talk about magic, and most of them are tales about the adventures of men in what he calls the perilous realm. And he asks, well, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the fairy story? And so he says well it's the the magic of the fairy story lies in the work that it does so it's not an end in itself so he would he would he would look at maybe literature that just becomes a kind of certain fantasy literature as almost narcissistic right if it's just for the sake of entertaining i think that he would view that as a kind of maybe uh, you know subcategory right it would be kind of less than what it's meant to be and one of these one of these one of the work that it's meant to do is that it's meant to satisfy these certain primordial human desires that we all find ourselves with to survey the depths of space and time to hold communion with other human beings. Uh, he looks at it and he looks at the origins of the fairy story, right? They're, they're as ancient as human records go. It's a kind of universal art form, maybe not in the sense that, you know, you're, you're seeing kind of epic um, epic fantasy or epic novels all the way back, but just as it goes, it's a universal art form. So it seems to be something that's natural to human beings to create in this way. So wherever there's language, he says, you have this genre of the fairy story. So not that it's has literal fairies in it all the time, but it's, it's why he spells it in the, the particular way that he does to, to set it off. So in the literary art of fantasy, man becomes a sub-creator, right? So that's Tolkien's famous sort of coinage, right? This sub-man is a sub-creator. We, and sub-creation is something that is reflective of our being created in the image and likeness of God, right? One of those ways is that we create, we make things just like God does. So in these stories, in these narratives, he talks about how there's, there's three faces to them, which, again, are linked to our natural desire for what is transcendent. So there's a mystical face to it, which he says, points us towards the supernatural, the magical face that directs us towards the mystery of nature in itself, and then the mirror, which offers us a self-reflection on who we are as human beings. Something else he asks is he, well, it seems like, and maybe you're sitting here asking, you know, looking at me side eye and said, well, isn't isn't this stuff for children, right? Aren't fantasy stories for children? He says, well... Um, you know, these, this kind of tale is often derided as childish and for children, and often they can be, right, in the hands of a poor author. That's what it is. But it's kind of an accident that we've ended up sort of thinking about fairy stories and fantasy as a childish endeavor. Um, in fact, he mentions, right, the older one gets, the more one actually needs this art in many ways, the more one you also, the more you can also develop a taste for it. And the reason I think that he mentions the more you need it, the older you get, is that you can become right, you become jaded. You you look at the world in a certain way. Right? Anyone who's been around children, um, healthy, you know, uh, children with. Uh, good view of the world, right? They have a great sense of wonder. They're asking questions. They're curious. They're always sort of amazed by the next thing that they see. They have a very natural sense of what's wonderful and amazing about the world in the sense that, you know, maybe you and I don't Right. Depending on your personality, I suppose. But you can grow up and you become jaded and cynical and you can view the world in a certain way because you've been damaged and abused and traumatized like all the rest of us. And, um, you know, in some of us in more ways and some of us in less ways, hopefully. But that's the reason. Right. He said, well, the more the older you get, the more you often uh, have a need for this kind of. <sighs> encounter I think he would call it with with this kind of art and the kind of desire that he's talking about this this mode of sub creation right, is designed not to concentrate on possibilities for this or that action or event to reality it's not about any one thing right it's concerned with awakening desire in itself. Right. The most successful stories he talks about all share this kind of desirability, right? Everyone's, I mean, hopefully everyone's been to the end of a book and been sad that it's the last page, right? Because you want the experience to continue, right? You want to continue to inhabit... The world to live in this for this to be true in a certain way. Right. It's why also when you will go back to certain tales, whether it's a book or, you know, I guess in the world today. Right. Everyone has like a favorite television show that you watch 12 times. It doesn't matter if there's 10 new things. I'll just watch the thing the 13th time because I like it. Right. It's comfortable. It's comforting. So. You know, we, you know, we as sort of you know jaded elder statesmen of the human community, right, often associate these kinds of things with with children, right, the fantasy, the the aspect of recovery and escape and consolation, right. Oh, it's a comfort to you, right. You often hear that about religion, right. Oh, it's well, so you believe this because it's comforting, right. You want this to be true, right. Um, it's I think it's only in <laughs> Only now can you say that as a kind of pejorative, I think. It was like, yeah, it is comforting. I do want it to be true, right? There's nothing to say whether it actually is or not, right? Um, so in, when, you, when you encounter this kind of fantastic story, obviously in, in Tolkien's days, he's considering literature. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could extend this uh, in our day to maybe the best of, best of cinema, things like that, but the The kind of tale this is is designed to arrest the hearer or the reader, right? and we we often don 't like this he says or we don 't like to be sort of shocked out of our comfort and our routine that we 've developed on our own, um, but that this kind of this kind of narrative is peculiarly human. we engage in the act of art and sub creation. Right? Because we ourselves are made, and more importantly, are made in the image of our creator. Right? So we are creators because it's part of what flows out of our identity as made in the image and likeness of God. Now, in the, the narrative structure that he talks about that can seem childish at times, he talks about this as- these aspects of recovery, escape, and consolation. Tolkien says, one of our primary flaws is not being able to see the truth of what's in front of us. I think that's very true in many ways. Um, and so, narrative, a story, is needed to regain a clear vision for seeing the world, for seeing reality in the manner that we are meant to see it. And so, the fairy story for Tolkien helps us to regain a kind of clarity to our vision. It's, uh, I think think he he uses the phrase to clean the windows of the soul, to free our sight from the blurriness of familiarity. And often, he says this occurs by what he calls the Morifak fantasy. Anyone know what that is? If you're sitting, let's say you're, you're sitting down, you know, and you sit down at a table and you look through a glass door, and you see that word on the glass door, right? You're inside what? The Morifok fan This this idea that you know you need to be you need to shift your perspective, right? So the Morifok fantasy is the co- right the coffee room. Right. So we're invited in good, true narrative to see things from the other side right? to see things from a different perspective that will help us gain this to, to clean the windows, as he says, right, to gain this kind of clarity, to recognize the strangeness of what we've taken for granted in many ways, where in good narrative, especially in what he's talking about with the fairy story, the realities of the world become ennobled, right? They become more noble by their use in our own sub-creation, right? He gives the example, he says, well, you know, the, the the horse is ennobled by the existence of Pegasus, right? It ennobles what a horse is, and our backyard gardens are ennobled by the existence of the shire, right? And so we see these things that might be in themselves fantastic or not to exist, but they're meant to kind of give a clarity to our own experience of what we actually have in front of us. It's the reason I think um, he doesn't use this example, but what it 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 pushes me, I think, to imagine this as applying very well to our Arch, like church architecture, for instance, or our experience of beautiful liturgy, right? And we talk about the church architecture as you know, you know, it's a this. The cathedrals are meant to do something, right? It's not just, you know, if it's just because I can do it or to glorify myself, right? It becomes that kind of well fantasy for its own sake, right? Well, what is it for? There's an end to it. Architecture, right? The you know vestments, candles, incense, you know holy water, sacred arts, women veiling, men in habits, right? You know Paschal fires, Christmas trees, all of these things that are meant to sort of awaken in us a desire. I think you, Eng, England happens to do that well. I think um, there's a reason American fairy tales are all set in some sort of generic English village, right? Um, there's something in like the American psyche that that thinks about. You know England and Scotland, right? So this part of the world as kind of fantastic. Um, So I think there really is something about this part of the world, and we can, you know, talk about that later. But he Tolkien asks, well, if you're, if we're talking about this kind of escape into narrative, into story, isn't that, isn't that actually something childish? Because we we tend to think that way. You know, get out, you know, get your head out of the book, or. You know, turn off, turn off the TV, you know, turn off the video game, whatever it is. Stop engrossing yourself in this thing, right? Live in the real world. Right? Yeah. You hear that? and say that? Things like this. Um, but Tolkien points out. He asks the question: or right, is, you know, is the imprisoned man a uh, childish or scolded for attempting to escape his own prison? I said, well, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. Uh, he asks, is Odysseus a fool for attempting to escape his own circumstances and return home? I said, well, no, of course not. Um, and so his his conclusion, right, is that we, we've convinced ourselves too often that what we've manufactured and enslaved ourselves to is the real world. And this, you know, the coffee room example, right, is a way of saying, well, if we shift the perspective, right, maybe what we're meant to escape is this kind of falsity, right? And so good narrative, good story can do this, right? We go on holiday in order to escape, but we know that once Monday comes around, we've gotta get back to the real world to how things really are, but is, is that really the case? Right? that's the opposite of the case in many ways. The real world is the world we encounter, you know, the, the child will tell you the real world, is, you know, finding a really cool seashell at the seashore, not going back home and being forced to go off, you know, to go off to school for eight hours a day and be scolded, right? So if you ask them, which of those two is the real world? They'll be very happy to tell you, even though most of us adults would say, well, in fact, you know, school and work, that's the real world. So escapist mentalities exist, because right, we often long to escape what we created and what we've created and sort of fallen into, and so we have this desire right, Tolkien continues to say to escape to a previous age in which we could delight in our surroundings and in the work of our hands right. there's something really interesting at least a sort of phenomena that maybe only exists on social media I don't know um, but what something that I'm sort of personally kind of cur- like very interested in is old architecture and sort of good urbanism this idea that, you, that really kind of that doesn't really exist in the states but it exists over here right cuz you you know everything was built before cars and so things are built for you know people and walking And so you you get this sense, you see pictures of, you know, whatever it happens to be, any of the old Cotswold towns, right? You walk around and people see pictures of this on the internet and say, well, that's, you know, that's not realistic. And, you know, we need to build, you know, people need cars and people need to do this. And it's like, well, which of these two is more realistic or which one is more built for a human scale, right? The, The American mindset is like, you need the car, you need to drive and everything else. And they see these pictures of what seems to them to be these fairy tale Villages and streets and houses and but you but you're here you go you go there like people people live there like this is just real life for many people and So anyway, this this kind of escapist mentality, right? People see this. Oh, that's it's Fantasy, right? It's not real. Well to come over here. There's real people live in you know live in Burton on the water right? It's just yeah, I mean it's a tourist Destination for a reason though, right? It gets back to that idea. well What, what do we desire right? What's what's actually real? You know, you do you desire it for a vacation and though it's not re- actually real or do you desire it because there's something in your heart that sees something beautiful and very human and you're attracted to it. So when we see ugly, I mean, when we see ugly things, right, the ugliness of the world tends to point us away from itself, right, to something beyond that. We tend often to associate ugliness with vice and evil right? we don't often imagine right how do we picture the how do we picture the evil queen in the story versus you know snow white or the princess right who has ever imagined the blessed Virgin to be an ugly woman right you associate beauty and virtue and you associate this, and it's not an accident in tolkien's mind right? this is not something accidental so and here's where i think it gets us back to our You know, overall lecture topics, right? This fulfillment of innate desires. When Tolkien talks about this, he's not talking about frivolous. Things, right? He's not talking about, um, you know, something frivolous that a child might, that the child might want to do, right? To have the power to fly, or to, um, you know, to sprout wings and fly, or to develop gills and swim in the bottom of the ocean, right? It's not that kind of desire, right? That doesn't fit the kind of creature you are. It's about something more serious and profound. He, he, continues, right? The, and for him. This gets back to things that we sense that we've been cut off from. So not something that would be brand new, right? That would be kind of beyond us in a way that is um, extrinsic or, or artificial. This idea of sensing as a human being, right? If you, you know, walk in the forest, right? That there's something about nature that you're meant to be connected to. So this idea that there's a kind of ancient separation, between the realms that we've been cut off from. And obviously this goes back all the way for a Christian, right, to the Garden of Eden, right? There was meant to be a kind of harmony about the cosmos that we don't experience anymore, unfortunately, all right? Has anyone read, um, back to Lewis, has anyone read the, the Cosmic Trilogy, the Space Trilogy, it's called? I mean, Everyone's read like Narnia, basically, right? Everyone knows Narnia. Right. But like almost no one has read the Cosmic Trilogy. So Lewis wrote Lewis and Tolkien, right. Challenge, right. They they basically challenge each other, Lewis and Tolkien. They say, well, Tolkien says, OK, well, you you know, Lewis, you you write a uh, like a space trilogy. And Tolkien was supposed to write a time travel trilogy. He never did. That's too much time in Middle Earth. Uh, but Lewis actually got around to it. And if you haven't read it, I really recommend reading them. I think that they are I mean, they're I think that they're. Better than Narnia in a certain way, uh, right? Narnia is not like a. I mean, Narnia is great, but it's not like this is re, like this is the best literature I've ever read, right? There's a lot of flaws to Narnia, as is, is, um, sort of wonderful as it is. But the Space Trilogy is almost like if have you read um, the Abolition of Man? Lewis's Abolition of Man's, written 60 pages maybe. So it's like if if Lewis took the Abolition of Man and wanted to make it a kind of um, cosmic space travel like apocalyptic kind of horror trilogy. That's basically what it is. Um, I've read it like four or five times. You can talk about going back to stories that we like, Um, but it's, there's a character at the end. I will try not to spoil anything, but he has an affinity with these animals that end up, that keep showing up around where he lives. And there's something about Lewis showing this, what Tolkien I think is talking about here, this sense of we've been cut off from nature Right, this this figure who becomes more and more filled with divine grace and participating right in the divine life with the angels also becomes the one who's able to kind of communicate with the animals in a particular kind of way. So this idea that you would go back right to this almost edenic state where to be human, you think well, is to be more in tune with with nature and the rest of the cosmos. And then the most serious fulfillment, right, the most innate desire, I talk about not frivolous, right, but it would be the great escape, talk about escapist mentality, right, the ability to cheat death, right, that's the true escape from what we've tricked ourselves into thinking is reality. You know, they look at Christ or or our lady and they look at this this is idea that oh it would be a human being that didn't sin right I think well that's they, they equate that with not being human right because they've been tricked themselves into thinking our fallen state this is what it means to be human when in fact right the christian the, the, the christian wonder is that that's actually the opposite of the case right it's you know who is the most human than than Mary, right? Who embodies what humanity is meant to be more than the one who's unstained by sin. So the ultimate consolation for Tolkien, obviously, is the happy ending, right? Drama is defined by tragedy, fairy by its opposite. This is where he coins the phrase, the catastrophe, the snatching of hope and victory from the jaws of defeat, the sudden joyous turn The miraculous grace that breaks into the story. The denial of ultimate, universal, final defeat, though not without denying defeats and sorrows along the way, of course. So for Tolkien, the eucatastrophe is the Christian story, ultimately. So even though, right, he talks about a lot of people sort of look at something like The Lord of the Rings, right? Oh, well, that's not, it's not, you know, he. They want to preserve it from sort of being a kind of Christian epic. And in a sense, it's not. Right? There is no there's no, uh, you, know, you know, Aragorn's not going to mass and something like that. Right? There's no kind of established religion like that. But in his letters, right, Tolkien talks about how the more like the more revisions he did, the more kind of Catholic it became in inspiration, if not in the same way that Lewis writes Narnia as kind of an allegory. Right. You're, I'm sure you're aware, right, Tolkien's kind of allergy to Lewis's sort of uh, allegorizing tendencies in many ways. Um, he's less Lewis get Lewis does less of it in the cosmic trilogy, though there's there's enough of it that I think is is quite interesting. So our redemption is worked in such a way that we've been redeemed, uh, to use Tolkien's word, you catastrophically, I think, and sacramentally. There's a canonic, right, an outpouring mode of redemption to accommodate our mode of receptivity, right? We we just so happen to be corrupted-making-type creatures. And so God works our redemption in a way that mirrors that and infinitely surpasses the type of story that appeals to us. So the Gospels contain, as it were, a kind of anti-type of the fairy story. Not anti as anti-against, contra, but anti as in before or above type of the fairy story, which itself contains all these stories in itself. In this way, it's a kind of platonic form, as it were, a divine idea in which our subcreations participate. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of our existence and of history, and the resurrection itself is the eucatastrophe, eucatastrophe of the incarnation. And in Tolkien's words, right, there's no other tale that we would rather discover is actually true. And in that sense, the use of the fairy story right, is not a kind of apologetic that you know. Read read Lord of the Rings, and you'll become a Catholic, right? It's not it's not what it's meant to do, right? But read something like Lord of the Rings or or any other kind of uh, you know great literary work, and if you've done if the author has done it well, and you've done at least a halfway decent job of reading it, it would hopefully open you up to something that. You know, you recognize this is good for a reason or this is beautiful for a reason. This has moved my heart for a reason. In a a purely materialistic world, it doesn't seem that that would be the case, at least so the argument goes. And so this kind of imaginative apologetics is not really a proof for God in the traditional sense, but it is, I think, a proof for the existence of you know the transcendentals, right? It's a proof of uh, objective truth, of objective goodness, of objective beauty, and more. So this is the this is one of the last lines of this this essay in um, in Tolkien's on fairy stories. He says, "The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of, eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation." This story begins and ends in joy. It is preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true on its own merits. For The art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art, that is, of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath, which in many ways, I think, is part of—not— you know, John, John Paul doesn't read Tolkien's on fairy stories and write Fides at Ratio. But one of the things that Fides at Ratio does, right, is talk about how one of our primary problems in the 20th and 21st century now is our tendency to a kind of fatalism or nihilism, right? When you have lost faith and then also have lost your ability to trust your own reason, your own experience of the world, which is what the fairy story is meant to do, right? It's not meant, again, it's the fairy story is not meant to make you Catholic, although it, it, it has in many ways because it points to this objective natural reality. right? It's meant to awaken your human nature. Right? when you lose that too, it leads to everything that occurred in the 20th century. Right? It leads to the world wars. It leads to communism and fascism, and it leads to nihilism, which often is what I think we're dealing with in many ways – Now, with a lot of the gender ideology stuff, right, people don't trust themselves and don't know who they are. And they end up hating themselves for it because they want to know who they are. They want to be able to trust their own experience. Right. And so when you want to to completely change what you can through technology and medicine and become something else, I think that that is a perfect encapsulation of our desire to sub-create, right? And also to recognize our own identity. Now, because we're fallen, it ends up in a twisted twisted way, right? But you think, I don't think there's anyone who would object to this conclusion, right? The rejection of the gospel and the rejection ultimately of our ability to, to know and recognize things that are true leads to sadness and anger. It seems to be even more the case, right? And he, of course, Tolkien's writing this in... Actually, gosh, I don't know when he wrote this. Maybe the 50s. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago. So when we talk about this this desire, right, that we're looking for, right, this longing, um, the the mere existence of longing challenges, in many ways, our purely materialistic, purely naturalistic conception of the universe. Right? When you talk about wish fulfillment right? again on the one hand can seem childish but it opens up the possibility of something greater right religion as opposed to being the opiate of the masses it just comforts you it sort of soothes you uh it's just what you want um there there's nothing that really runs counter to that interpretation of religion than the lives of the saints i mean the the greatest saints don't seem to have used religion as an opiate, right? If anything, they've used religion to abuse themselves, some people, right? So that's that's kind of the two ends that people say, on the one hand, oh, religion, it's an opiate, it's just about comfort, and also look at those weirdos like whipping themselves in the back and fasting and killing themselves and, and through all of this stuff, right, so because you've got both sort of both extremes as objections, chances are the saints are right there, right down, right down the middle, right? It's this desire, right? This truth that the saints and martyrs have found that runs totally counter to this idea that it's pure wish fulfillment, pure, you know, satisfaction of what you might want, everything else. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I could invent a religion more counter to our fallen human desires than Christianity in many ways, right? So it's less about the specifics in the end. The you know what you might desire, because right, as you know, Thomas talks about what makes us happy and lists all the different things that could make us happy, right? So it's not about the what's, it's about the existence of longing per se. Right. And so reading good literature, right, presenting truth and beauty, is about cultivating this kind of longing, right? Cultivating genuine, genuine lasting desire and joy. So it's about juxtapositioning, right, sort of cheap goods versus true goods, right? The cheap goods are what lead you to sadness and wrath, right? The things that you choose because they might seem good in the moment or because you've been tricked into thinking them or you've sort of developed bad habits, right? uh, All those kinds of things lead to this kind of sadness and wrath. Whereas the lasting goods of the world, which this good art is meant to sort of reawaken a desire in you for, is, is what will be truly the, the opposite, right? This idea that um, genuine sub-creation leads the human spirit to what is true, good, and beautiful. And then hopefully, right, that allows you to be transcendent, to open to the transcendent supernatural realities as well.